So Ezra chapter 3 is where we're going to be at um, this morning. We're going to finish chapter 3. When we started chapter 1, just, uh, what, three weeks ago now, uh, we started out in chapter 1, verse 1, seeing God's sovereign decree. We see his providence over the nations. We see that God was decreeing and in, in, in working in the life, in the heart, it says, to stirs the heart of King Cyrus, of the Persians, to let his people go back to the land. They have been in captivity for over 70 years now in their land, and now in the, uh, in the land of Babylon, and now they are being led back to Jerusalem and to Israel so that they could, in Ezra we'll see, to rebuild the temple and then renew and restore right worship before the Lord. This pagan king gave them permission, authority, as God stirred in his heart, and he gave them all the provisions that they would need to rebuild their temple. He gave them back the temple gold and the silver pieces and the bowls and the forks and the knives that were all used in the temple worship. Chapter 1 was a fulfillment of the Word of God. It was a fulfillment of what Jeremiah uh, prophesied, what Isaiah prophesied. God was fulfilling His promises to renew and restore the remnant of His people. In chapter 2, we saw that there was this massive list of 64 verses of, of these families, all the different families that, that went back into Israel at that time. 42,360 of them, priests, Levites, temple servants, Solomon's servants, and, the, uh, and all the people of God, even people who couldn't exactly trace their lineage back precisely, who believed themselves to be Jews, went back to the land with them. It was a huge list, but it was more than just a list. It was a manifest of God's faithfulness to his people. They were small. They had been in captivity. They had been put down. They were weak. But God says, this is my people to whom I have covenanted with. Let me give you an example of how strong God's commitment is to his covenant and to his people. This week, as I was reading in my, my personal study, uh, I was been reading in Second Chronicles, and in chapter 21, there is the, uh, the this, uh, uh, passage about King Jehoshaphat, and he was one of the very few good kings of Israel, of Judah, actually one of the really good kings. He messed up a few times, but he brought about some serious reforms to his people. He purged the land of of much idolatry. And most importantly, which I, I found amazing a couple passages earlier, was he restored the teaching of the scriptures to the people. And that brought about these reforms in the land. He was a really good king. And this king had seven sons. And he loved his sons dearly. And lavished great gifts on his sons. Great gifts of wealth and possessions. And, and made them in charge of some of the greatest cities of all of Judah, the fortified cities. And his oldest son, Jehoram, was given the kingdom when Jehoshaphat died. 
And get, what do you think was the first thing that Jehoram did after he became king? He murdered his brothers, all six of them, and then proceeded to murder his nephews. Now, we don't have to answer the question why, because we know the human heart. He was evil, and he did what was evil. In fact, the text says he walked in the ways of evil before God, and he led the nation in evil. But what struck me was what the Bible said in chapter 21. It said, yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made that he had made with David since he had promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever that's verse 7 clearly god could have and should have judged this king and wiped that line out completely way more than even king saul way more wicked and yet, what does God do? He owes them nothing, but he is committed to his promises. He's committed to his covenant to his people. And that same covenant faithfulness has continued now through judgment, through a people in exile, and now to the new exodus back into the land. In chapter 3, no wonder then we see the people respond in ways of obedient worship like they did. They gathered as one man in Jerusalem on the seventh month. They built the altar and they began the daily and regular sacrifices before the Lord. And very importantly, in chapter 3, it tells us that they worshiped even though they were scared of the people around them. But they worshiped because of their fear not in spite of it, or not despite it. When we fear the things that are uncertain, scary, and unknown, we turn to the Lord in worship and obedience according to his word. And that's where we are today. We're, we're now left off at that place where they began their worship and began the sacrifices. Worship is happening, but their work is not done yet. There's still much to be done. Let's look at Ezra chapter 3, and I am going to start in verse 6 this morning. Ezra chapter 3, verse 6. For the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and the food, drink, and the oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant that had from they had from Cyrus king of Persia now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month Zerubbabel the son of Shetael and Jeshua the son of Jehozadak made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen the priests and the levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They anointed, they appointed, excuse me, the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord, 
and Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel with his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites and their sons and their brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals, and to praise the Lord according to the direction of David, king of Israel, and they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and the Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men, who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice. And when they saw the foundation of the house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the shout, the sound of joyful shout from the sound of people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his inspired an inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. Now, technically, we are starting off in the second half of verse 6. And that gives us the context of, of, of what happens in the next, the rest of the chapter. We know that the altar had been built, but the temple had not been built. There's still rubble and destruction all around. Not even the foundation was left. So the reconstruction of the temple becomes the, the main focus of everyone at this point. And right off of, of the bat now, this is the, the third time now we see in verse 7 how God's people gave. They gave. They gave money for the, the masons to lay the foundation and to set them in place and the carpenters to frame it all out. They gave food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and Tyrians so that they would bring trees of cedar from Lebanon. There's no trees in Israel around Jerusalem. I think in the new Jerusalem there will be. But trees have to be brought in. They tells us that the wood was delivered through the city of Joppa. Again, a, 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 a very much a reminder, brothers and sisters, of, of this is the pattern by which the first te temple was built. Cedar trees from Lebanon, from the city of, through the city of Joppa. Money given by the people. Skilled laborers brought in to help bring about the work. And all of this was granted to them by the king of Cyrus the king. And then we get to verse 8. And there's a little break in, in my Bible, as there's probably a break in yours. And that's because about a six-month period has passed since that first section. About a six-month period has lapsed, and now it's the second month, April or May, for us. Springtime in Jerusalem. And the project of rebuilding the temple is in full swing. The materials have been gathered and it's being done. Step one is to set the foundation. In the second month, 
of the fourth year of King Solomon's rule, they also started the, rebuild, or the construction of the first temple. We see patterns of Scripture in the Scripture. And just like we saw the priority, the necessity and priority of worship, we see the people prioritize again the rebuilding of the temple to renew right worship before the Lord. We see a pattern in this scripture. And that's a, there's a pattern that I want to show you this morning. A pattern that they, they did and that the Lord brought about. And it's by which the same pattern that God's people still do today. We do the Lord's work. We give the Lord praise. And we hear the Lord's call. As we see in this passage, we see God's people doing God's work. We do the Lord's work. We're called to do God's work. First, we in verse 7, as we have already said, for the third time now, they gave. They gave of their money and their resources, the things that were necessary to get the right workmen for the job. You've said it several times, but our worship when we gather is not just in our singing. It's in how we hear the scriptures, but it's also how we give. We do the Lord's work when we give for what the Lord is doing. We do the Lord's work when we give what the Lord has given us to do the Lord's work. That's the first thing we see them do. Second, they do the, words, the Lord's work collectively. And they do it enthusiastically. This became the, the main project for them. Verse 8 tells us that all participated. All were engaged in the work of the rebuilding of the temple in one way or another. They were all engaged. Just like in verse 1 tells us that they gathered in Jerusalem as one man. They were enthusiastically doing the Lord's work. What good would it have been for any of them if they were to do anything of the Lord's work begrudgingly. What good would that really bring about? What blessing, what joy would they really receive by begrudgingly giving or by begrudgingly leaning or helping or supplying resources for the building of the temple? Third, I think one of the reasons why we see such enthusiasm and why we see such a co collective unity is because we see how they had good leaders lead them. They had good leaders lead them. And this is so important because God puts leaders in our lives to lead us, to lead us into righteousness. And in that righteousness, lead us to do the Lord's work. Zeru and Jeshua by name. We've heard them several times by now. You should be able to pronounce them, if I'm pronouncing them right. I don't know. I should be. It says that they made a beginning 
They made a beginning, as it says. And in, in, in other words, it, it means that they committed. They committed themselves to do the hard work of leading God's people. If, if you don't know much about Israel's history, Israel, God's people, are not exactly the easiest people to lead. And there are several examples of that. Even of the greatest leaders that they had, they still grumbled and complained before them. They wanted to kill Moses. I mean, who would do that? Right? They killed Jesus. Right? They're not exactly the hardest, they're not exactly the easiest people to lead. And yet, Zerubbabel and Jeshua committed to bring alongside them, to lead them to shepherd them, to bring the people, all their kinsmen, and the priests, and the Levites, and everyone else, enthusiastically they followed these great leaders. And fourth, we see how they got the work done. How did they get the work done? Well, they delegated, and they assigned the, the work appropriately. The Levites became the supervisors or the foremen of the project on the house of the Lord. Right? This is your deal. You are the foreman of the house of the Lord as it's being rebuilt. And, and what's amazing, some of those Levites were as young as 20 years old. Step it up, young men. Right? Step it up. Right? That's what I've heard. I need to hear that. I needed to hear that as young as 20 years old, to supervise the work of the elders. The priests also joined in with them to supervise the, the, the laborers and making sure that the right man was doing the right job. This certainly says something about the order and the sophistication of their organization of the people and how they were going to accomplish such an amazing project. The commitment of the leadership, the people giving in their enthusiasm, and most importantly, their priority of doing the Lord's work. You know, if, if you remove any of those elements, take away the money, take away the leadership, take away any of the materials, the, the workers, the enthusiasm, desire, the, the organization, the structure, how far would that project really get? How far would it really go? Remove any of them and it will languish. It will bog down. It would not get done at all. In fact, just wait till chapter 4. You see, God has given his people the task to do his work. And God has provided through his people he raises up leaders, and in a similar way, he has given us his people to do his work. He has given his people, as his people, we are called to do his work. You know, the, bar, the book of Ezra is far more than just a description of management skills and organization, leadership, and how to do and, uh, work projections and things like that. But brothers and sisters, I want you to know, it's not, even, it's not less than that. It's not less than that. It is a story of God's redemption, of how God renews his people and points us forward to the gospel. But this story shows us a pattern of how God has used 
his people to accomplish his work, and we must not forget that. To whom did God create and place his image on and command them to cultivate and subdue the earth? Who did God use to lay a foundation of the gospel for the church? Who did God use to inspire his words that they would write them down to tell of his greatness and his glorious work of redemption? To whom did God reveal himself through his word? To whom did God send his son to die? Who did God call and command to go therefore and make disciples of all nations to baptize them in his name? Who does God use? To whom did God give the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers? The answer to all of those questions, brothers and sisters, is his people. He uses his people to accomplish his will for his glory. He uses us in our giving. He uses us in our serving, our working, our meeting, our discipling of one another. He uses us as leaders in the church. He gave his people to do his work in the church so that his people would do the work of the ministry. If you are in Christ, a Christian, then God has brought you into this same pattern, the pattern to do his work to be all in for his work. And this may seem overwhelming to you. Like, this is too much. I can't, I can't do this, but let me comfort you with the words of Jesus. And Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, he has created you, and he has redeemed you and saved you, that he would empower you to do his work by his Holy Spirit. And he has given you his grace for this work. Also, Paul testifies this. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and by his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. Let me finish this point by saying we need to remember the importance of the work within the church. You know, we've been, we've been in this building now for four weeks. This is our fourth Sunday. And now I, I hope that you have been just as excited and and enthusiastic and encouraged as, as I have. It's a blessing. It's so neat to see our, a, a sign outside and so many other things that, are, that are, have come together over these couple weeks. But before this, when you, if you didn't gather with us, you, didn't, you don't know this. For weekend and week out since October 2015, that's somewhere around 250 weeks, we had to show up early each Sunday. And we had to stay late each Sunday to set up and to tear down. A church 
sprinkler had to be set uh, hooked up even earlier than that and backed up, towed around, unloaded, reloaded. Carpets had to be, bathrooms needed to be picked up, trash had to go out. Meals were made for our gathering meal Sundays. Meals were cleaned up afterward. Books were set up on the table, put up, put down, put up, put down, put in boxes, pulled back to the trailer, back from the trailer again. Same song, week. Sound equipment set up, sound equipment checked, sound equipment making frustrated by, video equipment getting frustrated by, getting it worked on, getting it set, a computer being worked with, children cared for, children discipled, children corralling. You helped. You, you gave, you gave, and you gave, and you pitched in, and every bit of it, and every Sunday, when it didn't even feel like you wanted to do it, the Lord was in it. Though it's not I, but the grace of God in me. I don't even think I've come close to, to all that you have done to give to the life of this church, or even come close what the future may hold. But the reality is, is we would not be here if any of those steps were not made. The Lord used it in more ways than all we could see. He has increased our fellowship with one another. He has increased our joy it is a blessing now to have this place, and I'm so glad that we do not have to tear down and load something up in a trailer anymore, at least for a while, that we don't have to. And there's still vacuuming that's going to need to be done, and chairs need to be straightened, and books need to be reorganized, and bathrooms need to be cleaned, and lawn things, and child care, and, and when we do the meals, all those things will still need to be done. But I don't want you to ever miss the blessing and the joy in being an instrument of the Lord's work to accomplish his work for his glory, no matter how small you may think it may be. Do it and be the, accomplish the instrument of God's glory. Play the background, never be seen, but the Lord knows. Even, even though these things have changed, we start earlier, our work has changed, I still encourage you to take advantage of the time to truly fellowship with one another, pray for one another, help each other out in ways that maybe you haven't done before. Jump in now and help in ways that maybe you've never done before because there's still much gospel work to do. Second, we give the Lord praise. This really jumps off the point, the second point we had last week or the whole sermon of of last week. In fact, the whole force of chapter 3 is, is driven by their worship. It's driven by their worship. They're giving, they're, they're, they're going, they're leading, they're, they're organizing, they're, they're proclaiming. It's all driven by worship. All their obedience is driven by worship. In verses 10 and 11, after the first step of the rebuilding project is complete, the they, the foundation is completed, what do they do? They intentionally stop. They stop to what? To, 
acknowledge again the Lord. To publicly and corporately acknowledge the faithfulness of God. It says the priests, they put on their vestments. They put on their, their priestly garments. They came with trumpets. The Levites brought symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions that, of King David of Israel. Verse 10. I think this text is just amazing. Because here are the priests and the Levites not only supervising the, the rebuilding of the temple, but they themselves become the worship leaders as well and choir directors. In fact, in fact the, the main root of the word supervising in Hebrew is also the same root of the word of choir master. That you see, you know, in the beginning of your psalms to the choir master, it's the same root word. They begin to do both. They, they see uh, uh, the, the continuation of their work as leaders to lead their people in worship. There's a renewal of this community that happens in the worship of the temple. But worship there is not what lasts in that temple. But it points us forward. It points us forward to a, to a greater priest, a greater who not only supervises and leads and leads us in, in worship, he is the, the better David. And he himself will tear down this temple and rebuild it. And he will rebuild it. And he will draw all men to himself as a worship leader to the glory of God. Not to mention how Christ's righteousness clothes us in his righteousness. The priests put on their garments as symbols of God's holiness and purity. Brothers and sisters, Christ has given us his righteous priestly garments. And therefore, we become as his priests before God. This was truly a good day in Ezra chapter 3. It was truly joyful. We don't want to diminish that, but it was pointing forward to something greater than 42,360 people worshiping God for the laid foundation. It points us to the Son of God who will draw all men and women from the nations to himself, to the glory of God. And they sang responsively in verse 7. And they gave thanks to the Lord as David did. They sang, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. They are proclaiming and singing over and over that God has remembered us. That God has remembered his promises. That his covenant is sure that even in exile, even in fear, even in uncertain times, we can be sure because God has fulfilled his promise toward us. We don't know what the future holds. Good times, bad times, crazy times. But God's promises are sure. You see, we too are drawn into this story. We're drawn right in. They worshiped and they praised God for, for this concrete pad. I don't know if it was concrete. Probably was, of course. They didn't have concrete back then. But this foundation that was, that was set. And this foundation was pointing them to a firmer foundation in Christ Jesus. 
Because what that foundation could not hold, the foundation that we have in the solid rock of Christ is for sure. On this rock we stand is Christ. It was pointing to God's faithfulness. But that foundation being laid, brothers and sisters, we don't necessarily rejoice in that. We rejoice in the firmness of the foundation that we have in Christ as our Savior. And as Christ as our substitutionary atonement. And upon that rock, we can build our lives firmly to weather all the storms and tempt us that comes our way. Everything in the Old Testament, all of those patterns have been fulfilled in the way Jesus lived and died. He accomplished salvation that fulfilled the festivals, the sacrificial system, all the rituals in the ministry of the temple. In his death, he has fulfilled the exodus as the Passover lamb. And in his resurrection, he inaugurates the return of the exile. Christians, we are those who have been delivered from the bondage to sin and death by the death of Jesus. And Christ is our foundation. His apostles are the foundation. And we are are the living stones of the spiritual house that is being built up by the Holy Spirit. That is our story. And that is why we sing. And that is why we join together in praise of God. Ezra 3.11 is our song. But even more is Psalm 100, verse 5. And everyone, I want you to say it with me. It's going to be on the screen. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. We praise him, and we sing of him, and we worship him, as we heard last week, because he is infinitely worthy. And lastly, from this passage, we hear the Lord's call. Verse 11 tells us that all people shouted with a great shout, and they praised the Lord. In fact, you can see later, and it's, it's so loud. It's just reverberating throughout the city of how loud they were in singing together and clanging cymbals and blowing the trumpets. But that day was also tainted a little bit. Maybe you caught it in verses... Um, 12 and 13. It was tainted by a little bit of nostalgia from some of the old dudes. There were many priests and Levites and heads of households, but some of those were the grandparents. And they had much experience about them, but their experience didn't start in captivity. It actually started in... And they remember probably as children, the glorious wonder of the first temple that was there. The temple that Solomon, it was spectacular. You have to go back and read it in the, in the Old Testament and see that it was unreal. It, it, would, it would astonish us of how glorious it looked. 
But they knew when they saw this foundation, this concrete pad that was just laid, and here all these other priests, Levites, and people rejoicing. They looked at this, and they were just sad. Sad in the fact that it was nowhere, this temple was going to be nowhere near what Solomon's temple was. There, could, there would be no Ark of the Covenant. It was missing. It was gone. So that means there's no tablets of stone of the Ten Commandments, no Aaron's budded staff, no jars of manna. The size of the foundation was small in comparison. And even the thinking about the day of rejoicing when the temple was starting to be then, they, they looked and said, this is minuscule compared to what was. 42,000 people is a lot of people. It's nowhere near the millions that probably were drawn when Solomon's temple was dedicated. Yes, God had restored them, and he is renewing them, but God had also judged them, as he had promised he would his people. So here's the other side of the event then, where, where people wept with such great tears that it was so loud that it even rivaled the shouts of joy. And you know why? I think there's two things why. Number one, because underneath all of their disappointment and their weeping and their sadness, they know that it was because of sin. They're in this place today because of sin. Why the temple was nowhere near like it was. Why Israel now is in fear and strangers in their own land. Why? Because of sin. They are feeling directly the effects of their sin. Oh, brothers and sisters, there is certainly something for us to learn here. Something very important. I think this is one of the calls that God is telling us to hear from this text from ancient of days. Is for us to know that sin is our greatest danger. Sin will ruin our lives. Sin will steal your joy. Sin will make it so that even when God restores you, until he wipes away every tear, you will feel sin's remorseful consequences. Sin will make it so that you will still worship but you will worship in tears. We learn from this experience. The call of God is to hear, to hear, O oh people. Sin is dangerous no matter how enticing it may be. It may taste good going down, and sometimes it does. But oh, how bitter it takes. It comes back up when it takes root. So do you hear that call? Do you hear that from their tears? Have you heard that from your tears? To be burned of sin. And I think there's another thing, another way that the Lord calls us from their tears and their cries. God restored them to the land. He's renewing them of their worship. 
And yet, it's only a fraction, just a faint shadow of what used to be. And more importantly, however, what God is renewing and restoring, or what they're seeing in the foundation being built, is that it is nowhere near the glorious end time promises that the prophets had made. This foundation could not be it. From the prophets uh, Zechariah and Haggai, who were the prophets at this same time, they, they tell us that some of the people even believed that Zerubbabel was the Messiah. He was certainly a, a, a type of Messiah, a type of, of Christ to come, but he wasn't. This wasn't the foundation. He's not reigning like the Messiah should be. Jerusalem certainly isn't being exalted. Their disappointment here is realizing that those prophecies being or are being fulfilled in some way. They see them happening in some way already, but yet they realize as well that they're not yet going to see them fully realized. And that grieves them. You know, this is part of the goal of Ezra, is to point them forward. This is, this is great, everyone. This foundation is good, and we're being restored, and everything is looking great, but get, this ain't it. Don't be deceived that this is it. And they were grieving that fact. Brothers and sisters, we do the Lord's work. We've already heard this. We, we do the Lord's work in, in all the ways we've already said and more. But don't we feel the, the tension that, man, there's so much more to do. There's not enough time in the day. I'm too doggone selfish. I'm still trying to deal with these things. There's still so much more to do. We worship, we praise God. We can, we can in Christ, even this morning, we, we feel deeply the goodness of God and the steadfast love of our Savior. We feel that, we acknowledge that, but yet even in our worship, we hit this ceiling, right? We just don't get there. We're still in this this frail flesh that won't let us get there, and sin that still entangles us so greatly that wants to continually pull us down. Temptation never lets up. And oftentimes we can become so discouraged that this Christian life is, seems to be so much more disappointing than it does joyful. But guess what? We're just like them. We've experienced the already. And salvation and new life in Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we've experienced forgiveness. But we know things have not been fully realized, right? It's the tension that we feel every day and every week. The things that we bring in every Sunday morning. But brothers and sisters, we press on. And we forget what lies behind and we strain forward to what lies ahead. 
and we press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Our work may be small and seemingly insignificant. Our worship may be tainted by the flesh, but we press on knowing that when Jesus comes, then it will be fully realized. And what they were weeping over and what we weep over, it will be fully realized when our faith becomes our sight. The Lord's call here is to persevere, to put away sin, and to endure in faith, knowing that our God is good and his steadfast love towards you in Christ Jesus, it endures forever. One thing is clear for all people is that we all want to be fulfilled. We want to find our purpose And in those purposes, we want to find satisfaction and happiness and contentment. In all the people in the world, in all the millions of ways, humanity has attempted to fill that desire with fill in the blank. If you are not a Christian, meaning you do not know Jesus Christ, then let me tell you that no matter what you chase in this life, Success, fame, wealth, honor, self-improvement, morality out of religion, morality in religion. You may find pockets of happiness with trinkets of this world, but you will never be content. You will never be satisfied. And it will certainly never justify you before a holy and righteous judge. You need the righteousness of Christ. You need Christ's atoning work on the cross. And the good news this morning is for you is that all you do is you you call upon him. You repent of sin and you believe in him. You trust in him for your salvation. You put your faith in him. And if he is calling you into salvation this morning, then by all means, hear and repent. And almost any one of us in this room this morning would be willing to sit down with you and help you understand the gospel more. Just ask. If you are a Christian, brothers and sisters, do you want the fullness of joy? then the pattern by which we have saved this morning is the pattern that we follow. Do the work of the Lord. Joyfully trust Him in the work that He has set before you. Give the Lord all the praise and pursue His infinite worthiness and delight in Him. Do not neglect the worship with the body of Christ. And hear the Lord's call to resist and flee from temptation and sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful again to have been able to go through this text and hear your word. And may would you be with us now as we respond.
We pray all these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.